please stand for the reading of the Word of God. We're in John chapter 21 this morning. But I'm going to start the reading back in uh, the 30th verse of the 20th chapter for the connection there. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Chapter 20, verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? Literally, little children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore, John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard this, or that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not so far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out uh, out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish 153 of them and although there were so many the net was not torn Jesus said to them come and have breakfast now none of the disciples dared ask him who are you they knew it was the Lord Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them with the fish, so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You may be seated. Now, a casual reader might conclude that John 21 here was an add-on after what seems to be John's conclusion of his whole book there in the uh, 
20th chapter that we read, verses 31 and 30, uh, 30 and, thir uh, and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs. But these, and, and it really does seem like a conclusion to the book, but it's not. John narrated three post-resurrection appearances. His third and final appearance follows in chapter 21. The first two took place in Jerusalem in a locked upper room. But this one takes place in Galilee on the shore of Lake Tiberias, the Sea of Tiberias. And, it, and notice verse number 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples. So the last verses of chapter 20 are not the conclusion of the gospel. I think they are tied to Thomas's uh, situation. And it's an appeal to the reader to believe on Jesus and not be like Thomas who refused to believe unless he personally saw the risen Lord and touched his wounds. So we read, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these were written, or are written, that you may believe, that you may believe, even though you've never seen him, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So believers are to trust the unseen Lord. Oh, we would all like to see him. Wouldn't it be nice if he came to us in our dreams or he came to us in, in uh, visions or if he came to us in uh, our homes or if he came to us in the church here. Wow. But he doesn't. So we read there in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. And what do we get for it? The outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So now, there are three main divisions in the Gospel of John. It's kind of interesting how it, they work out because the first is only 18 verses. The first 18 verses, which is the prologue. And then we have the body of his uh, book, which uh, is from verse 19 of the first chapter all the way through the 20th chapter, verse 31. And then the third is just the last chapter. The prologue, what we would call an epilogue, excuse me, an epilogue. The prologue and then the epilogue, which is chapter 21, verses 1 through 25. The prologue deals with how Jesus will manifest the Father. In chapter 1, verse 18, we read, No one has ever seen God... Uh, the only God who is at uh, the the only God who is at the Father's right hand, He has made Him known. Nobody has ever seen God the Father, but God the Son, who sits at the Father's right hand, He has made Him known. Now, in the epilogue, the last, 
details how Jesus will manifest himself to his own after he has returned to the Father's right hand. So we read in chapter uh, 14 and verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, that is his own, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and, note, will manifest myself to him. How does he manifest himself to us? This is a promise he made. And now he's going to illustrate it for us in this epilogue. John opens the, then this chapter with after this, and which I believe refers to the first two appearances that took place in the 20th chapter. So after this, uh, he revealed himself, he revealed himself, notice, in this way. Now, he was there physically on the, on the shore. And we cannot expect him to do that, but here's, a, here's where the symbolism takes place. And I, without any question in my mind, uh, th these two chapters are full of symbolism. Like when he breathed on the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit. And we know that they actually didn't receive the Holy Spirit until uh, later when uh, Pentecost was fully come. But uh, he did it in a symbolic sense. He breathed on them like God breathed into Adam the breath of life and Adam became a living soul. We can't live without the Holy Spirit of God. We, we are utterly dependent upon Him. So now Jesus reveals Himself the third time to His followers who are in a boat while He is on the shore. So He's distanced Himself from them. And I'm going to point this out here in a minute to you. See, it's not, and he doesn't, this is not, he's not in their midst as he was in the first two times. When they are in a closed room and with the door locked and he comes and stands in their midst. He's not going to do that anymore. Now he talks to them from the shore, not in their midst. So remember, Jesus chose the first two appearances in going back here to the 20th chapter for a minute, Jesus chose the, to make the first two appearances on the first day of the week. The evening of the first day and then the evening of the next first day. And in that, I believe, he inaugurates and hallows the new Sabbath for the gospel age. Thus, on the first day of the week, we read there in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, we, it says, On the first day of the week, here the church gathered together to break bread. Paul preached to them that night. Preached a long sermon. young man fell asleep and fell out the window. And, and uh, he had to resuscitate that boy. I mean, put, <laughs> give him life again. But, and they were very glad. But uh, notice... Then in Hebrews chapter 10, it said, verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some 
as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. I think the church is very important. It doesn't matter how big it is or how little it is. It's important. It's important that the saints gather. And after, so now after a three, uh, after, excuse me, a week long, the week long celebration of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because that's what we have. See, actually, when you think about it, the first two appearances was at the beginning of the feast and at the end of the feast, because it was a week long. And it began on that uh, Saturday. It was the first day of unleavened bread. Or Friday, either one. I'm not sure just where. where. But then the disciples then returned to Galilee. They've been in Jerusalem. So after this uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, they returned to Galilee, their home. And in this chapter, we learn the mental state of these disciples after Christ's resurrection. And after they witnessed Him in Jerusalem. They've been with Christ in a close relationship while He was on the earth as they walked with Him and heard Him teach and preach and perform miracles. But now this relationship is different. He can come and go at will. He can appear to them in a locked room. So now, and I would argue that Jesus explained how this relationship would be in his uh, upper room discourse, what we call the upper room discourse. Actually, it took place, I think, uh, not only in the room, but on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. But the, what, that we have recorded there in John chapters 14, 15, and 16. He is teaching them. Here's how you're going to relate to me when I'm no longer with you. And what our new relationship will be. But because the Holy Spirit does not yet indwell them, they don't understand. They, they consistently don't understand the Scriptures. And they don't understand this new relationship. So, I think this incident on the shore is to help them a little more to grasp what it's going to be like when he's gone. There's, and they, one other thing too, they're still confused about the kingdom of God and, and of Israel. And they're confused about their own role in it. And they're, and for example, they're in uh, Acts chapter 1 or verse 6. They asked him just before his ascension, will you, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? No, he's not going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He doesn't tell them that at that point because they don't, they, they're still not able to understand the new covenant and that what the new co that what this new kingdom of God entails. So now this chapter shows us that although Jesus would not be physically with them, he would, as he promised, never leave them nor forsake them. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. He would continue to govern, guide, and provide for them by his Spirit. Aren't we glad for that? We don't, we don't need to worry. He's here. He's in our midst. And He will continue. I will never leave you nor forsake you.
So that brings me to this point here, and that's, uh, again, some symbolism. John employs darkness here. They toiled all night and took nothing. And he, I believe he uses it as a symbol of, of, of our natural condition, like Ron was speaking about there at the table. Our natural condition is, is darkness. And notice that there are a number of references. Chapter 1, verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Chapter 3, verse 2 says, This man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, and so on. Chapter 19, verse 21. The people, uh, ver- no, excuse me, uh, 19 through 21, verses 19 through 21 of chapter 3. People loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Chapter 12, verse 35. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Chapter uh, Verse 46 of that 12th chapter. Whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. Chapter 13, verse 30. After... So after receiving the morsel of bread, he, Judas, immediately went out and it was night. Evil was afoot. Chapter 20, verse 1, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Mankind lives in spiritual darkness without the light of Christ. So in chapter 20, verse 12 I am the light of the world whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life so the disciples then were coming to grips with their resurrected Lord but they were not they did not yet fully realize that without me you can do nothing then I'd like to correct a misunderstanding that I've had about Peter in this I've read it and reread it, prayed over it. I preached preached it both ways before. But I, I really settled on this now. The the point here is that I've said in the past that Peter suffered some despondency and and a failure in his denial. That he then wondered whether this failure would disqualify him from future usefulness in the service of Christ. And so he was saying to the disciples, I'm quitting. I'm no good to God anymore. I might as well go back to my old job. I'm going fishing. And they said, we're going with you. That part of it kind of troubled me a little bit. But uh, I don't think there's any evidence at all in the scriptures that would support this. That either... Peter or the other disciples were leaving their apostolic calling to return to their own lives. No. So, what what is going on here? I, not, I, and I would also argue that uh, Peter had, had the Lord had already previously appeared to Peter. Now, these are these are three incidences that John records, but we have the synoptic gospels recording other incidences of his appearance. And so we read there in Luke's Gospel, the 24th chapter, verse 34. The Lord had risen in, uh, when uh, 
Luke wrote that when the disciples who had gone to Emmaus returned, remember the story of the two disciples that went on the road to Emmaus and that Jesus came alongside them and was talking with them and they didn't know who it was. And then as they sat and broke bread, he revealed himself to them. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us? And, when they, and they immediately returned to Jerusalem. And when they did so, they greeted the disciples uh, and they said, the Lord, uh, who said to them, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Particularly. And I think Paul also supports this by the fact that in, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 5, he says that the risen Christ appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. So I, that tells me that the Lord had already dealt with Peter concerning his denial. So what was this fishing expedition? I think in the context here of the disciples returning to Galilee, uh, and, and here's the point, they were ordered to do so. Remember in Matthew chapter 28, verse 10, uh, he said to Mary Magdalene, Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So they did. They went to Galilee, and while they're waiting for Jesus to show up, they said, let's go fishing. Just to occupy the time. They're waiting, just simply occupying their time. So let's look at the text itself here. Christ on the shore. And this is, I'm, I'm really pointing out here the symbolism more than anything here that's pointed out. Not Christ in their midst anymore. Now it's Christ on the shore. They're in the boat. Christ is on the shore. And I think it's also contrasted to the first occasion of this type of thing that we find in Luke chapter 5. And uh, I would point out here, it seems like Jesus has an affinity for fishermen. There's seven of them in his among his 12 disciples. Seven of the 12 were involved in that occupation. Humanly speaking, fishermen tend to be persistent in all weather conditions and at all times, even when their work seems to be futile. How many times have I gone fishing and haven't caught anything? But that sure didn't hinder me from going again. <laughs> and... We have that example there in, in, in Luke chapter 5 and verse uh, 5 when Jesus had borrowed Peter's boat. And then after he finished preaching, he told him, launch out into the deep for a great, for a great catch. And Peter's response to him as master, notice he called him master here because he doesn't really, Jesus is not Lord of his life. He just recognizes him as a great teacher. And he said, Master, we toiled all night and have taken nothing. But then, showing you this fisherman's persistence, he said, nevertheless, at your word, we will. <laughs> and he launches out. He was ready to do it again, being accustomed to coming up empty. So in... In the night here in John 21 was such a time. They fished all night and caught nothing. And I believe John's using that in a symbolic sense as well. 
Sometimes it seems like their work is fruitless and futile. They were out there toiling all night and took nothing. But dawn ended their futile fishing. Jesus' manifestation came to them as the day was breaking. See the symbolism? We work in the light. He supernaturally, I think, also on this occasion withheld his identity. And so he inquires of them, Children, have you taken any fish? Do you have any fish? Little children, have you taken any fish? Because this is how that how people would do. They would go to the shore in the early morning when the fishermen were coming back from their toil all night to get fresh, to buy fresh fish from them, and they and they probably assumed that Jesus was uh, such a customer. So they said no. Not us. You're going to have to find some other boat because we don't have any. But then Jesus told them this customer (laughs) insisted cast the net on the right side and you will have some. Now isn't that interesting? They're not out in the deep here. They're they're close to the shore 100, 100 yards off. That's strange that uh, that a customer would would order them. This is and this was not a maybe this will work kind of a suggestion. Well, why don't you try it again? Throw it over there on the right side, and maybe that'll work. Ah, uh-uh. it was a command, and it carried a definite promise to result. You will find some. That Jesus was again being gracious and merciful to their human condition. They don't trust him. They, they, they haven't understood things yet. They're not trusting him. But they, in this occasion, they did obey. And notice, they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Verse 6. This was a miracle. And John immediately perceived it. This disciple whom Jesus loved, I think was probably his cousin, immediately recognized the significance and calling Peter said, it is the Lord. The identification then reveals John's ready insight and it also reveals Peter's ready action. He stripped him, he had been stripped for work, threw then uh, on his coat and jumped in his outer garment and jumped into the sea to swim immediately to shore to see his Lord. This is another thing that tells me Peter is not thinking that Jesus abandoned him. And uh, but he left Peter to uh, deal with the uh, left the, the other disciples on the boat to deal with the catch. He he was he was anxious to get to Jesus. So now let's contrast that with Jesus in the boat. We have Jesus on the shore here. Now let's contrast that with Jesus in the boat. 
And there, there, and this takes us back to Luke chapter five. This first time, it's Luke chapter five, verses one through eleven. We won't read it here, but there are similarities between these two events, these two fishing expeditions. One at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, and one at the end. Both involved the same lake, the Sea of Tiberias, also known as Gennesaret, and the Sea of Galilee. And it's under similar circumstances. They fished all night and took nothing. But in the first incident recorded in, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus was in the boat. I think symbolic of his earthly ministry. He was with the disciples. And this took place before Jesus called his disciples. He borrowed Peter's boat and to repay him, he wanted him to, to give him a miraculous catch of fish. So it says they let down their nets and took, a, took such a catch that their nets began to break. And in their amazed and befuddled state at this miracle that they have just observed, he commissioned them, Do not be afraid. From now on you'll be catching men. Verse 10. And then they obeyed, and when they brought their ship to land, they forsook all and followed him. That's verse 11. But now there are some more, there's, there are contrasts here that I think are even more evident such as Jesus being in the boat as contrasted with his being on the shore. In Luke 5, Jesus was in his unresurrected flesh. But in John 21, he was in his resurrected body. Note in verse 12, None of his disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. What I, John? What's John telling us here? He's telling us that they know that there's a difference. They know it's the Lord, but they can't get their minds around it. He's different. He's radically different than what he was. And they're not and and so they they've got doubts, is this really him? No, it is him. But he's different. See? This was not the same man that they, whom, with whom they had walked for the last three years. And they would, they would like to have asked ask him to say, It is I, be not afraid. But he doesn't. <laughs> but they're afraid to ask either. They're afraid to ask. And then I would note that previously, Peter was accustomed to arguing with Jesus at the wisdom of his requests. Not this time. He said, throw the boat and throw the net on the right side and you'll have a catch. They did it, without a question. In the first incident, Peter had asked Jesus to leave him. When that, when that miraculous draught of fishes were in the net, Peter fell to his knees and said, depart from me, O Lord, I'm, a, I'm an unworthy man. But not this time. He throws his fisher coat on and jumps in to get to Jesus as fast as he can. He, in the first sense, 
He was sensible of being too sinful to be near Jesus. But in the second incident, Peter sought to get near Jesus, sensible of his being too sinful to be apart from him. Matthew Henry commented on this. Those whom Christ de uh, designs to admit to the most intimate acquaintance with him, he first makes sensible that they deserve to be at the greatest distance from him. And we must all own ourselves to be sinful men and pray that he would not depart. For woe unto us if he leave us. However, Jesus now would relate to his followers differently. He would no longer be with them in the physical sense, but he would still be with them, though unseen. The lesson the Lord would have us to take from this is that they still needed him and had to rely on him in every situation, and so do we. Now, third, and then we see Christ at the coals. Christ at the coals. And here the symbolism continues. As the disciples come ashore, finding a charcoal fire and fish cooking on it and bread. And A.W. Pink suggests the following things. One, the scene assures his servants that Christ will care for them. Two, it leaves his servants a pattern of fo uh, uh, to follow that they serve others as Christ served them. So he had talked to them already about that in chapter 13. He said, go and do, do it and do likewise. Then thirdly, it teaches his disciples and his servants that in their labors they still need to be fed and warmed. We have physical needs and he will meet them. And finally, number four, Jesus does not depend on the labors of his servants for he can accomplish his will either with or without them. Boy, that's comforting. So Jesus asked them to bring some of what they... And here's, here again we see this symbolism. So he asked them to bring some of what they had caught there in, ver, in, in verses 10 and 11. So now he's going to show them that he will use them to carry out his will. He told them, you cast the net, they cast the net. Christ gave them the catch. And then they struggled to get it. <laughs> it, was so, it was so large, it took six men all their effort to try to get that, those fish up. And it's interesting here that Peter, then he tells Peter, go bring some of the fish. And he goes, jumps in the boat and does what the six men were struggling to do, he does by himself. And I think here, here is the fact that John is pointing him out to be the leader of this gospel work of fishing for men. See, what we, here's what we see. We see this pattern of fishing for men. I'm, from now on, I'm going to make you fishers of men. So at Christ's command, he does this. Then the catch itself is proof 
that obedience to Christ will be fruitful. Do it. Sometimes you wonder. But he says, do it. I think here the number of fish is symbolically foreshadowing the success of their approaching work to catch men for the kingdom. I'm going to explain that in a minute. It's 153. John didn't round it up. He didn't say it's all around 150. He caught, man, they caught over 100 fish. No, he's very specific. 153 large fish. This was to be, this was the beginning of successive catches that they would have uh, until, as we read there in Habakkuk 2 and 14, the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I would also point out there the contrast between the two first two incidents. In the first two, he told them, throw your nets in. And the, the, the catch was so large that their nets were breaking. But in this incident, they had such a large that their net, singular, was not torn. Does not this remind us that those who catch uh, in or who are catch or caught, excuse me, in the gospel net will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So this I'm going to I'm going to close here with this number one hundred fifty three. It draws attention, and uh, whether it's actual, whether this is right or not, I'm just gonna, I'm going to leave you to think about it. But I but. Uh, it, it is interesting. Those who have studied the numbers and their significance argue that with good evidence, John intended for the reader to pay attention to that number. Numbers hold great symbolic significance in Scripture. For example, number two, the number of witness. Or number three, the number of divine perfection. Number five, the number of grace. Number six, the number of man. Number seven, the number of divine completion. And so on. Augustine discovered that 153 is the sum of all numbers from 1 to 17. I was going to check that out. never did get it quite checked out. I was doing it in my uh, at night there. To, and I kept falling asleep. But when I got up to about uh, 11... <laughs> But uh, uh, 1 to 17. But 17 is the number of victory. 153 then is seen as symbolic of the perfection of God's kingdom purpose to gather all his redeemed in the final victory over this wicked age. Seven men who had toiled in their own strength came up empty. But now, used of God, they brought about a glorious work in abundant fruitfulness by the Spirit of God, symbolizing the result of the gospel going into the, all the world. Think about that. So what is the lesson here? Is that success in Christ's work depends on immediate and implicit obedience empowered by the Spirit and authorized in the divine will. Finally, Jesus bids them to come 
and dying. Teaching us that his loving, gracious care and compassion in the days of his humiliation will not change in the days of his glorification. Jesus does not keep his own at a distance, even when they do not perceive his presence. However, as with them, we tend to be reluctant and need constant assurance. Amen? So three lessons here very quickly. First, Peter is the focus of this chapter because he would be the central figure in introducing the gospel into, into uh, in the gospel to the world in the gospel age. But it's interesting that in Acts chapter 13, he disappears. It's Paul who takes the central stage. Secondly, Peter, and, and we're going to continue with Peter here next week, but, but it, secondly, Peter operated in his own flesh as seen in his leaving the boat to come to Jesus. This is one of Peter's problems. Always putting his foot in his mouth. Always saying the wrong thing at the wrong, at the wrong time. And here is another example. Here, these guys are struggling with this catch. But what does he do? He leaves them to, forget it, I'm going in. So he abandoned these men to this task, not thinking of others, but making his own choice. And that's what we do too. We often make our decisions based upon what we want rather than what is God's will in this matter and how will my decision affect those around me. And then thirdly, much has been made of the Lord's command to let down the gnats, plural, and I, I've already mentioned this, but in chapter Luke chapter 5, whereas in, in John chapter 21, there's just one net, singular. Nets versus nets, I think, probably means nothing. But the broken net reflects Israel's I think symbolizes Israel's reproach, approach to the kingdom of God and the unbroken net symbolizes the, the gospel approach to the kingdom of God. Israel failed where the church succeeds. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you, Lord, for the, our opportunity to consider these truths in Scripture this morning. Lord, make us fruitful in the kingdom. Lord, I believe the kingdom uh, the, the, the kingdom days are, are fast closing. Lord, we want to be used of you in this last in these last days of the last days to bring about real honor and glory to our Savior. We can't do it without you. Lord, use us for your glory. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.